Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. second hour of Mornings with Carmen today on this Thursday, the 18th of March, 2021. Where in the word are you today? Let me encourage you to be spending some time uh, in the word. If you don't, if you haven't done it already, like go ahead and go to myfaithradio.com and sign up to join us in our Mark reading plan. Um, So during this season of Lent, uh, we're going to read through the gospel of Mark and we're actually going to start this Saturday, March the 20th. So you can still sign up online at MyFaithRadio.com and join us. Go ahead and opt in. We're going to send you a free Bible reading bookmark, um, and we'll enter you to enter you into a drawing for a copy of Alistair Begg's Gospel of Mark sermon series from Truth For Life. we got all kinds of stuff. So go to MyFaithRadio.com, uh, join us in this Mark reading plan, which starts March the 20th. All right. Um, Somebody asked last week uh, in relationship to all of the conversations that we have about marriage and sexuality and sexual orientation, gender identity and acronyms like LGBTQ plus um, on and on and on. Somebody said, you know, why why do we talk about these things so much? Um, You know, if the church would not be so fixated on these things, then maybe the world would not be so fixated on these things. And um, I suggest that sex is a pretty powerful thing. And people would be fixated on it whether the church was talking about it or not. And one of our failures is we have not talked about it positively. We have not taught people what God's Word actually says about gender and sexuality and sex and the the right place for it and the, the sanctity of the marriage bed and on and on and on. So um, what does the Bible actually say about God's design for human sexual relationships? That would be a good question for you to ask and answer. What does the Bible actually say about God's design for human sexual relationships? Yes, you're going to find lots of specific verses, lists of verses. You're going to hear uh, people talk about a whole scripture approach. You are going to hear people make arguments from silence. Well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Uh, Okay, but, but what did Jesus talk about? What did Jesus affirm in terms of human sexual relationships? Did he affirm adultery? No, he did not. He told the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more but neither did he stone her. What did Jesus say about marriage? Well, obviously he affirmed uh, male-female monogamous marriage when he attended one at the wedding at Cana. Um, Jesus affirms God's good design when he quotes himself, by the way, um, right? He is part of the Godhead present when Genesis 1 and 2 are written. So when Jesus is quoting Genesis 1-1, he's like quoting himself. Okay. Um, You know, when Jesus is quoting what the creation narratives tell us about being male and female, being created in the image of God and given to one another for the not only the birth of children, which is, you know, 
pretty important. Um, but one flesh marriage given for the ordering of family life and the flourishing of human societies, like that's a positive statement. So just because someone tries to make an argument from silence, well, Jesus never talked about this, um, doesn't mean Jesus never talked about the subject or bear or did not bear witness to um, the goodness of God's design for human sexual relationships. So um, I also want you to be alert for and listen for people who, are, who say things like, well, did God really say X, Y, Z? Um, ordinarily, the answer is, yeah, actually, God really did say that. And if we don't know the specific verses, then we are paralyzed in a conversation when somebody comes to us with, frankly, the very words of the enemy. Did God really say? Okay, yeah, in fact, God really did say that this is his design. This is how he made it. Why? For our good. For our good. Because God knows um, that this is the way it works best. So, um, for those of you, uh, I, I got tons of other things to talk about, but Peter Kapsner is actually waiting to talk about naughtiness like polyamory and paganism. And so we're going to turn to those, but we're going to turn to those in view of the fact that we already know and have established what God actually says about his design for human sexual relationships. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The riffing with Peter um, in that little one minute between <laughs> the open and and the open um, is really fun, and we talk so fast to each other to see how how many words can we get into the one minute. <laughs> right, <laughs> that was a lot. That you know, it, it, generally speaking, guys <laughs> use around six thousand words a day, and women on average use about twenty thousand. I think I burn up my six thousand in that minute between. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. Yeah, and that's that's my service to your family. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> getting getting you to burn up all your words. Um, okay, so I um, I became aware of the this first issue that I sent to you that the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, is recognizing polyamorous partnerships and other domestic arrangements yep. with more than two adults. Um, I became aware of this through a post at Reason.com. And I, I want to say that to people, um, not to advocate that everybody like go to Reason.com and read everything and believe everything they've posted. It's not, it's not expressly a Christian website, but it is. it does tend to have a lot of stuff posted there that um, helps me see things that are going on in the culture that I might not otherwise see in other, uh, in other media outlets. So you and I read this piece, Cambridge will recognize polyamorous partnerships and other domestic arrangements with more than two adults. Um, what really struck me was, um, was the conversation about the total redefinition of family, that really anybody who considers themselves to be a family will now be considered a family. Right. Why yeah. does that matter for those of us who are operating out of a, uh, a Christian or redemptive gospel worldview. Yeah, gosh. And that really was what struck me too, Carmen, is exactly what you said, is is I'm going to name these people, they're part of my family, and you don't even have to be living within the same residence anymore to then declare that you are a family. And it, even if you weren't religious, Christian, on any level in terms of what is the invitation to be a family from a kingdom standpoint, it, it really has tremendous implications from a from a civil standpoint in terms of 
we're talking about wills and inheritances and and who can visit who in hospitals and all of these uh, things come into play just societally when we decide, hey, this person and this person, this person is part of my family and we get to decide who that is. So that's a really interesting rippling out conversation from that part. But uh, what you said so well in your opener around the idea of we we can and should be reestablishing why is it that the nuclear family is uh, is is meant for one man and one woman and how do we think about that in light of future and this is the kind of thing that we need hours with in in the class that I teach and and we'll be teaching again in about 45 minutes to just kind of walk through so much of that but some of the basic foundations of it is that there is this God set up something really interesting in Genesis one and two when he set it up for male and female only to be living in this in this united covenant of one flesh with one another in the sense that within the Hebrew, the male word or the, the Hebrew word for male is ish and the Hebrew word for female is isha. And, and in those words, if you look within the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew is a character driven language, more like a, a Chinese or a Japanese kind of language in which symbol is rife with meaning. It's not just a functional kind of language like maybe our, our English languages are. The symbols mean things. And in their names are actually the very symbols for fire as well. When you pull it out in the Hebrew, there's evidence of God's image and the fire that is God is represented in the text is there. But then there's one other thing that really is interesting. There's one Hebrew character that's given to Ish, the male, and there's one Hebrew character that's given to Isha, the female. And what's given to Ish isn't given to Isha and vice versa. But when you bring those two little characters together in the Hebrew, Ish and Isha together, it forms the very name of the Lord. And the point of that is, is what the what the Hebrews would have taught back in that time is that there's something about God's image-bearing reality that is given to the man. There's something about the masculinity of the Godhead that is given to the man, and there's something about the femininity of the Godhead that is given to the woman. Those things are unique. You and I could probably have, I don't know, an hour, two, ten hours, five years trying to figure out what is authentically masculine, what is authentically feminine. But the point of Scripture is clear is that they're each needed to be at the table to therefore then steward God's unfolding future in in all of its different forms. Uh, In creation, in children, in family, the two of them are meant to stand side by side, different from one another, but bound together by love in their difference, uh, where he has to be at the table and she has to be at the table in in all these different walks of life. And it's pretty interesting, Carmen, when you read old Jewish thought on some of these things, that male-female relationships then aren't only for the family. The, you and I working together on a radio show, we're clearly not married. We're not meant to be married. We're not even asking those kinds of strange questions that just because we enjoy each other's company, that must mean something different, you know, like our, our culture is asking all the time. We're simply um, Ish and Isha working together side by side to steward God's creation. There's a lot more to it than that, but that starting from that foundation, then you can ripple out and say, huh, well, maybe... We've taken definitions for family and decided to make them only about us and what we care about. And it's not about stewarding God's future. It's not about the bigger picture. It's not about um, maybe entering into a bigger kind of story. This story is our story. We will decide and we're going to determine what is best for us in our own eyes. And I think we're starting to see the rippling impact societally and the breakdown of the nuclear family as a result of that. I mean, I. I'll say it for me, Carmen, last part of this is that in my young people over now 19 years of teaching, things are different. They are substantively and profoundly different in their lives. The rise of anxiety and turmoil 
and pain and suffering and confusion and fogginess and suicide and all of these things. This is what happens when we decide to take something and make it our own and, and forge the way forward instead of trusting what God's great plan was. So um, in 1979, I was not old enough to be a cultural influencer. Were you? No comment. Well, I was okay. nine. I was so, so probably not. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. So I think I was nine also. I was born in 68. 1970, so real close. I don't know. All right, so I might have been old enough to be a cultural influencer. Let me just I tell you that, that there, there was a band named Sister Sledge that released a single called We Are Family. And let me just tell you that if people think that the polyamorous, the arguments for non-monogamous group marriage business, whatever we're calling this, polyamory now. Right. Um, in 2021, we're calling it polyamory. In 1979, Sister Sledge was calling it We Are Family. And so for those of you who are listening and you say, this has just all come up in the last five years, yeah, the last no, 10 years. No, no. So let me just read. I'm going to read this and we're going to go to a break because I know we've run over our time. The uh, We Are Family. I got all my sisters with me. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. That's inviting, by the way, all cultural affirmation of this. Mm -hmm. We are family. I got all my sisters with me. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. And this is from verse 2. Here's what we call our golden rule. Have faith in you and the things you do. You won't go wrong. Oh, no. This is our family jewel. Wow. Talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. I, it's going to be in my head all day. I'm advocating the use of this song. Just, uh, Honestly, I'm going to be wondering right, why that's now, in my head I today. I know. And now we're going to be like dancing around uh, to I know. it. Okay. I know. So um, from polyamory to paganism, you know, I, I hold all the best topics for you. Peter. I so appreciate that, Carmen. I really yeah. do. Yeah. Other other people come on. They have to talk about like, you know, Senate judiciary hearings. You get to talk about <laughs> pagan rituals and how they have not only taken root, um, during this uh, during this season of COVID, but how the advocates of pagan rituals um, really see it only advancing and going forward. So, first of all, uh, Reverend Bo Nelson of the Circle Sanctuary has an online group meditation through which he instructs his viewers uh, to visualize a large tree symbolizing their deep community connectivity, on and on and on. Um, the fact that he's referred to as as reverend is a little bit troubling to me. Um, but what is going on here in terms of uh, a movement into at least syncretism, if not full blown pagan ritualism in in America today? Yeah, gosh, that's a great question, right? As I read through this article, the word that stood out for me more than any of the other parts of the word was how connected people felt. They they felt connected to one another. They felt connected to the land through these now virtual rituals. Typically, they've been held in person pre-pandemic, but now the rituals are being held in person. They're starting to come back together. They're experiencing the same kind of religious restrictions that the church is in terms of how many people can gather, but they are gathering together. But going back to the central point, is that people were really longing for connection. There is, there's such isolation in our culture, and, and, and individualism, in terms of raw individualism, is something that Scripture doesn't teach or advocate for. The, the Hebrew people saw themselves as people in community. They found their identity, their individual identity, within the fabric of a community of people. And so we've been living in this sort of raw individualism in, in America for a long enough period of time that people— really haven't felt connected. And then you throw the pandemic in it and it separated us. And so people are just simply looking for rituals where they can feel 
like they belong somewhere. And and that's really what seems to be happening in the pagan worship. But I, w- I was thinking back into the scriptures, why were the Israelites so um, prone to fall into Baal worship? Like who would possibly worship some wooden or golden idol in some kind of temple somewhere? Well, it, was, it wasn't because of uh, fear of isolation, but it was fear of their future because if you were an Israelite or you were any person in that ancient Middle Eastern world, you were always worried, understandably so, about whether the land would yield crops so that you could sustain yourself for food. You were worried about the fertility of the family so that you would have a future that would care for you. And you would be worried about the the future and the fertility of the livestock because you needed the animals. And so there was the sense in which Baal was in control of the fertility of the land. And they thought, well, Yahweh is in control of this other stuff, but we better worship Baal too, because we don't know that we can trust Yahweh fully in these things. Well, we don't deal with that. I mean, we have huge grocery stores. We're storing up our jars of manna all day long in our, in our pantries, and we're not worried about that kind of future, typically speaking. But the idolatry of individualism has led us to isolation and, and aloneness, and we just want to belong somewhere. So I think that's what I really took out of that article is that it seems so silly outside looking in that the Israelites would worship Baal until you crawl into the mind of the Israelite and see, gosh, they were, they were fear of their future. It seems so mm-hmm. silly to... Uh, worship in these pagan rituals outside looking in until you walk in the in the shoes of isolationism for a bit. And then it doesn't sound all that silly at all. I'm not advocating for it. You just, we understand why that is. And does the church have a, a way of life together, a fellowship together that could be a remedy to this that is so much more beautiful and profound than the simple connectedness of meditating over trees? Okay, and then 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 we're just going to reveal again that Carmen's fascination here is that these people have come up with things like, well, this one person gets to be the senior priestess at the Mother Grove Goddess Temple in Asheville, North Carolina, and this uh, this guy David gets to be the the initiated priestix. Yep, I don't even know what a priestix uh, is. That was the first time I've seen that. Yeah, no, no, well, that that X, I assume. Is gender you know, neutral, right, or something? Some kind of yes, yes. Yep. Priest, priestess are gender specific or designated, and priestix is not. And right. I, I just the proliferation of, uh, well, <clears throat> let me pause and just say, um, people just make stuff up, and Completely. I think that the challenge, right, for Christians is to is to stand and say, you know, our stuff is not made up. Like there's true truth to what we're talking about, um, and the Bible is not just uh, you know just something that got uh, tossed together uh, by some imaginative thinking. Um, this is the Word of God, yeah. and verifiably so. And let me demonstrate how. So yeah. I think that Christians need to be able to articulate um, the veracity of the Scriptures in much more concrete ways than most Christians are able to do so. And we need to be offering the kind of connectivity into real Christian community so people actually feel a part of the family of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, so they're not trying to forge chosen families that just are simply made up or connect themselves to the kinds of communities that are, you know, based in, frankly, at least one of these, Mother Goose. That's just not a (laughs) Mother Goose and Fireflies plays largely in this article. So It does. Yeah. No, I think it's so well said, Carmen. And and I think— what I underestimated until I started teaching this class on gender and sexuality sometime around 2006, and boy, just even the breathtaking change that's happened in those 15 years, but I think I underestimated how far maybe we are behind in, in inviting people into a different kind of wholeness in their lives in terms of family and sexuality, and it's not impossible to reestablish, and, and I think the good news in this and the hope in this 
is as I've been spending time or other people that I know teaching these kinds of topics are spending time with young people and you begin to examine the scriptures, there really is this message that is beautiful and wonderful and hopeful. And it's like, oh, maybe I do want to walk that way because these other things that you just described aren't bringing the kind of peace that I desire. It's, it's an illusory peace at best that ultimately leads me further down this, whatever this pathway of made up life is. When you anchor yourselves in the kingdom life and people are, are walking in that together, there really is a peace and a wholeness that comes from that. So now from Sister Sledge, I think we should move to who's saying walk this way. Was what? it like run DMC? Uh, walk this it way. It was. I think walk it was run way. DMC. I don't know. Well, maybe it was Yeah, because that was what Peter like Piper picked pebbles and run right rhyme. Yeah, no, I remember yeah, yeah, this yeah. whole deal. Oh, Paul. Like you, if you, Paul is shaking his no, head no, no Carmen. He's not, he's yeah. saying, See, because he's not going to let me go there, which not. is good. No, there should be no, some no. barrier and limit to what we're doing here. <laughs> That's great. Especially for, yeah, the sacred music people are now completely upset. Oh, so, yes, I know. Um, but now I'll run, <clears> run DMC in my head this afternoon as No, well. no, no. It's Aerosmith. I'm sure it's Aerosmith. Oh, walk this way. I'm thinking of a different one. Yeah. No, walk they did a version way. of though. Talk yeah. I know, right. but probably an inappropriate one. I'm sure. I'm so, 100% positive <clears> that's true. They probably all are. There yes. you go. So um, Peter Kapsner and I want to encourage you to walk in the spirit. Walk yes. this way. Walk in the big way. The W with the big capital W. Uh, Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. How was that for redeeming a segment? I love that. That was perfectly <sighs> tied together, Carmen. But that's what hey, you do. Hey. That's what you do. There you go. Little bows and everything. <laughs> I love all it. All right. Thank you, Peter. Great to talk to you. You too. We got to take a break for Breakpoint. From the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it is a clear call to Psalm 22, but do we understand Psalm 22 correctly? Uh, Do we see Christ's cry from Psalm 22 as a cry of dereliction of God's duty or a cry of faith in the goodness of God? We're going to talk about that next with Junius Johnson. This is Max Lucado. Some years ago, I read a study of what most Americans would do in exchange for $10 million. Among the options were abandon their family, abandon their church, give up their citizenship, leave the spouse or their children. It's not surprising to me what someone would do for $10 million. What's surprising is that most would do something. What would you do? Or better, what are you doing? get real, Max. You're saying I've never had a shot at 10 million. The amount may not have been the same, but the choices are, and some people are willing to give up their family, faith, or morals for far less than $10 million. Jesus had a word for that, greed. He called it the practice of measuring life by possessions, Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Jesus cautioned against all kinds of greed. What's your price? This is Max Locato. Dr. Junius Johnson uh, is the author of The Father of Lights, A Theology of Beauty. We have talked about it um, on several occasions before. He is a uh, historical and philosophical theologian. He's an accomplished teacher. He's passionate about... Um, theological education for all of us. So I would describe it as the kind of catechesis that we need today, which means that you and I get to sit with um, a person who 
not only has a theological education, but is adept at teaching us the principles of um, theological literacy. In fact, he's got a course right now um, open for registration called Theological Literacy. You can find it at his website, JuniusJohnson.com. Junius, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, So in the lead up to uh, Holy Week and ultimately Easter, um, let's talk about Psalm 22. Let's talk about the cry of of Christ from the cross and how it has been understood, and then how you would like us to see um, maybe a different understanding of the cry of of the the cry of Christ um, in reference to the quote from Psalm 22: "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Yeah, it's a very powerful moment when Jesus is there, and it's and it's. You know, all these things have been going on around him, and we've had this very dense description of the scene of the soldiers, what they're doing, casting lots for his clothing, of people mocking him and spitting on him and calling him names and telling him to call on God to bring himself and bring him down from the cross and whatnot. And then at this sort of dramatic moment in the action, as it were, he gives out this cry, this call. Um, and and it's kind of a funny moment because it's you know he says it in in, Ara- in Aramaic Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani and the the people misunderstand it and they say oh, he's calling on Elijah it's like well guys that's no that's not Elijah's name actually this is from a psalm that you should be hearing in synagogue what's going on there kind of show that even at that late moment in Christ's life the people around are being kept from understanding what's happening well traditionally we we look at that and we and we're we're so overcome by the situation that Jesus is in both the literal situation what's visible of him being on the cross but also what we now know theologically was going on there that in that moment he's bearing the sin of the whole world and and we hear him say that and it's the natural response is wow look even the son of god when he became sin for us is separated from God, he's crying out of this lonely abandonment as he feels the presence of the Father leave him, and you know, for the first time in his existence, he's alone. And you know, there's all sorts of questions that raises about what that means for the Trinity during that time, and um, and what's going on with Jesus's divinity and whatnot. And so there are songs about this, right? I think this is the inspiration for that bit in a. Um, gosh, what song is it? Where he says that the Father turns his face away, you know, mm. um, and. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what the, what the songwriter has in mind, but but I'm not sure that that, that we're we're really getting what Jesus is is doing there because he's quoting the first line of a psalm, and generally speaking, and we still do this today, right? If I if I quote the beginning of a song to you, you get all the rest of the song lyrics flooding into your head right now, right? If I I can mm-hmm. say I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and then all of a sudden you're off and running, singing you two in your head for the rest of the next five minutes. Uh, he certainly knows the rest of the song. There can be no question about that. And so it seems to me that when he when he puts that first line out there, he's setting up a whole series of reflections that our mind should go to as, as our heads play that tape of that song that he's quoting. And when we look at that psalm, it's actually really astounding. First of all, it's, it's the clearest prophecy of the crucifixion in the Old Testament. It talks about casting lots for his clothes. It talks about his bones not being broken. It talks about them jeering him with the very words that they're going to jeer at him. It talks about him being surrounded by these dogs and bulls, which are various names that could be applied to the Roman occupiers of Palestine at that time. Um, it's it's kind of chilling reading Psalm 22, knowing the crucifixion, because you're rec- it's, it's as if you're seeing the scene laid out. In fact, the apostles likely 
were so reminded of this either in the moment or after the fact that they that they intentionally structured the accounts in the gospels around this psalm to to underscore to the reader this is the moment this is the fulfillment of this time so it's a strong connection right jesus is connecting us back to the moment when his death was prophesied but the tenor of that psalm is really is really a lot different than what we get from just hearing the first line and not paying attention to the rest of it he says you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you from the beginning. On you was I cast from my birth. And as he goes on, the psalm develops into a psalm of extreme faith. You have saved me. You have rescued me. You have not turned your face away from me. Um, what would it look like to think of Christ on the cross in the midst of the darkest night of his soul, in the midst of bearing the sin for the world, calling out, not in desperation as if he's lost sight of the plan, he's lost sight of what they're doing, he's abandoned by God the Father, but rather to think of him as even in that moment so deeply united to his Father that he can speak with trust and faith and hope of the deliverance that he is working in the moment by his suffering, of the praise that the nations will bring to the Father in the future precisely because of what he's doing at that time. I think that might be a message we need to hear this Holy Week. Um, I think this Holy Week could be a really tough time for a lot of us, given all the things we've gone through and all the uncertainties that are still ahead. And to come to that cry of Christ on the cross and see that as a cry of hope rather than a cry of despair might be just what the doctor ordered this year. Yeah, I, I think, Junius, one of the things that you're demonstrating is that it's okay to ask a really big question about mm. biblical interpretation. It's, it's, it's okay for me to look at what the text actually says and read it all the way through and then ask in a very, in a very clear-minded way, are the things that I have been taught about this over the course of history and through even songs that I sing, mm. is that actually what the text says if I read it all the way through? So mm -hmm. if I read the psalm all the way through— do I understand that the sense of the psalmist at the beginning of the psalm um, is, is, as you say in this, uh, uh, in, in this article uh, on the topic, just the sense, like that's just a sense mm. of it. The truth is, the truth mm. is that God is God. Um, he's got a plan. He hasn't lost sight of it. There is a final vision, um, and that final vision that we get in Revelation is actually uh, in view here in the 22nd Psalm as well. I mean, we are going to mm. sit down and feast together um, and and we are going to rise and this is how it's going to happen. And God has not sort of lost the lost the plan somewhere along the yeah. way. Like this is it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, the, the Psalms always have a turning moment. This is This is why it's really good to pray the Psalms when you're in distress. And I would even go on further and say, it's really good to pray the Psalms when you have sinned and when you need mm -hmm. to repent of something you've done, because because the Psalms have some really chilling things to say about the oppressor, right? They have really, really horrible things sometimes to say about the person who lays a snare for the feet of the innocent or whatever else. And it's really good to pray those Psalms when you've become that person, not when you're the, oh, Lord, woe is me, this, all these things have happened to me, but no, woe is me because I've done all these things to other people. Because when you do the, when you pray the Psalms that way, first of all, it's very frightening. Um, you don't want the things that the psalmist is praying to be fulfilled. But then it's easier to see that every psalm has a turning point. Uh, 
every psalm has this moment where you turn from the wicked to the righteous, where you turn from judgment to restoration to salvation. And when you pray the psalm as the sinner rather than as the offended party, uh, which is, again, a good posture for us for Holy Week, you experience that turn in the psalm as an invitation to switch your identity, to cease being the oppressor and to become the poor person that the Lord delivers. Um, and, it, and it actually, for, for me, it's been a very powerful experience of hope to see myself condemned and broken by the Psalms. And then in the midst of that, in the very middle of the Psalm, to see God offer his hand and say, but I can change your identity, but I can make you the Psalmist and not the person who's oppressing the Psalmist. All right, I'm talking with Dr. Junius Johnson. We're going to be right back. We're talking about Jesus and Psalm 22 and the great goodness of the cross. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. At last the time to love and die, the dark appointed day, that one forsaken moment when your father turned his face away. All right, so that's actually the kind of uh, theological question that we are asking right now with Dr. Junius Johnson. So we hear there um, in, um, in that song, this this theological sense of what's happening when Jesus is on the cross. So, Junius, what is happening when Jesus is on the cross? If God's is God turning His face away from the Son, or is God turning His face away from sin? And if all the sins of the world are being borne by Christ, then how is God looking upon that? Because He can't. Like the, I think that the the question of what's going on with the Trinity at the death of Jesus is a legit question. Yeah, that, that's right. And it, 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 especially because, you know, it, it, there's a lot that goes into how you conceive of what it means for these three persons to be one God. Uh, you know, that's, that's the indispensable Christian proclamation. These three, God is three persons, and they're not just three different aspects of the same person or something like this. No, they're really three distinct persons, and yet they're not so different as you and I are that they're different in examples of the same thing, right? There really are the same God too. And this is the fundamental mystery at the heart of Christianity. So we proclaim that it's true, but how we think about that is going to affect a lot of our theology and especially how we think about Christ's life on earth. And there's, a, there's another scripture passage that I think is really, we're trying to be faithful to in how we think about this that plays into this. And that's Habakkuk one um, thirteen, when it says, your eyes are too pure to look upon wickedness. And so there's this notion that, well, God can't look at sin. And so in that moment when Christ becomes the sin of the world, when he becomes sin for us, what can the Father do but turn his face away? Because his holiness is so powerful that he can't look upon sin, and his Son in that moment has become all sin. That's a very pious interpretation. And so I don't want to say that this is some sort of— um, I don't want to say anything bad about that interpretation at all, but I do want to underscore that there are some questions that it raises because Christ is not just a man on the cross becoming sin for us. He's actually God on the cross becoming sin for us. And so it's not just a question of what can the Father do with regard to sin, but the Son, the eternal Son of God, who is himself God, is become sin for us on the cross. That's that's a lot further than looking on wickedness. That's becoming wickedness in some in some meaningful way for us. I think we want to be careful um, with the poetry of the scriptures, and especially of the Old Testament, um, not to let it lead us away from 
what's been revealed about the nature of God in the New, New Testament. I know for me, there's this fear of contamination. There's this fear that if I if I'm not careful, God's purity is going to be contaminated by the sin of the world, and I have to protect God from that. Mm. Um, and if I follow that out, if I had the power, if I, if, if I were chosen by God to protect God from <laughs> impurity and contamination, right, then when, when God began the process of incarnation, I would step in and I would say, hold on, slow down there, God. You can't go down there. Like, you don't understand what's going to happen if you go down there. It's messy. You're going to get contaminated. You can't do this. Don't you got to stay like in your like in your imagine like because one of the things that you like to also do is sort of provoke our imaginations, um, mm-hmm. and I am wondering if if there wasn't some conversation among the angels at the time, maybe <laughs> not directly to God, right? Because they right. probably understood that was not appropriate, but amongst themselves, <laughs> like, what is he doing? Right. This right. could not go well. I we've been down there. We have seen those people. We have walked <laughs> among them. That is a mess. You can imagine, you know, this sort of thing. Okay, somebody's go tell them. Somebody's got to tell them, guys. Somebody's got to tell them. Who's going to go over me? there? I'm not telling them. I'm not telling them. <laughs> right. Well, this is one of the things we learned from the incarnation. The incarnation blows our minds in every imaginable way. And one of the things it really attacks is our notions of God and what God can and can't do and should and shouldn't do. It's very pious to want to protect God from contamination or protect God from anything like this until it's pious until we reach the point where God himself chooses to put himself in those situations. And then it's no longer pious to try to stop God from doing what it is that God wills to do. Then you become an enemy of grace. So it's worth considering, at least, that maybe Habakkuk isn't literally saying that God is incapable of looking upon wickedness, that God is in danger from wickedness if he looks upon it. And so he's got to turn his face away every time. But rather that the God who is in the Lord of all, who is not the opposite of evil because he has no opposite, who is just above our notions of good and evil because he's good in a purer sense than we can understand, can look upon wickedness and that doesn't endanger God. That endangers wickedness, right? God, When God looks upon sin, God doesn't get defiled. Sin gets judged. Mm-hmm. And I think Amen. if that's what's going on in the cross, then – Christ is exposed to a very intense divine glare. And mm-hmm. for the first time in his existence, that may not be entirely comfortable because in that glare, sin is being burned away. But you made reference earlier to, to Revelation and to what's going to happen to us at the end of times, which I love and which we all need to think about so much more because that's we're given those promises to help us get through the world, to give us a hope that can overcome our immediate temptations and challenges. Well, I like to think about Judgment Day, and I like to imagine it this way, that when God looks on me, he's going to see all of my sin, and all of my sin is going to start to burn, and I'm going to feel it, and I'm going to feel it burning. But what's happening is one of two things will happen in that moment. Either my sin will burn up, and I will burn up with it, and that will just turn into the fires of condemnation, or... My sin will burn away, but because through the grace of adoption in Christ, I have an identity that is separate from that sin, when the sin is burned away, I will remain, and mm. then I, pure, can enter into heaven. If, to, if anything of that is true at all, then Christ has that confidence, even as he's feeling all of the sin of the world being burned up in God's gaze, looking upon Amen. him, 
that he knows that's not who he is. He still knows, but I am the son of God, Amen. but I am the righteous man of the scriptures. And so I will overcome this and I will live to praise God again. Amen. 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 All right, if you're listening right now and you think, I'd like to sit at the feet of that teacher for a while, you have the opportunity to do so. JuniusJohnson.com is where you want to go. He's got two courses that are open for registration right now. One is on theological literacy, which is just an excellent um, way for you and I to become more conversant and um, and more uh, clear about our own theological thinking. Uh, so Theological Literacy is a course that's open. Also, Here Be Dragons, which for those of you who um, love literature and want to romp through uh, literature uh, on the topic of dragons, um, this is going to be a fun course as well. So go to JuniusJohnson.com. Sign up for one of Junius's courses that are open right now. Junius, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. All right. Blessings on you this day. Keep sending me uh, your emails and thoughts. Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. I love to hear from you. Grab today's podcast uh, and share it with someone else. Be a missionary of the program in that way. Use your social media for you know positive influence. All right. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.